When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Toink.com. Get your exclusive Star Trek products like dishware, wine glasses, action figures, apparel, and more for your home at Toink.com. That's T-O-Y-N-K.com and use our code Roddenberry to take 15% off your order. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 479, The Shoot. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, searching for the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein, and seeing if it withstands the test of a seven-course meal. This week, The Shoot, the one where Tom and Harry are brutally imprisoned against their will and desperately clinging on to hope through Epicurean delusions of grandeur. John will have trivia for you in a moment, but first, here is how all of you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now... Here's John Champion with this week's multi-coursed trivia feast. <laughs> All right, trivia for the shoot. We have a story by Clavon C. Harris, and it's a pretty short resume for Clavon with just five professional TV writing credits. This episode of Voyager happens to be his first, and it's his only contribution to Star Trek. Shortly after, he did sell a story to Living Single and became its story editor for seven episodes. His only other sci-fi credit is for an episode of Farscape. Now, Clavon had pitched his story early in Voyager's run, and Michael Piller was the one who bought it. It sat unused, though, and after Piller's departure, it fell on Kenneth Biller to take the pitch to script, so he gets the teleplay credit. Biller got the prison theme, but he's the one who contrived the idea of a mind-controlled device that would amp up the prisoners' aggression while they were there, mostly as a way to compress what would have been a long time for them to be incarcerated. The episode was directed by Les Landau. We've seen so much of Les's work on Star Trek, going back to when he was the first AD on Encounter at Farpoint, and then when he was given the unenviable task of finishing Code of Honor when Ross Mayberry was let go. Now we say goodbye to Les for a little while. At this point in his career, he has worked on so much Star Trek, but was moving on to work on the police show High Incident for DreamWorks on ABC. Don't worry, though. Les will be back a few more times on Trek. 
Now, we've mentioned on the last few podcasts how Voyager had banked a few episodes at the time of the end of the second season to air during the third. Well, this episode is actually the first that was shot during the third season. It was a slightly easier runway for the production to have uh, a little longer time here shooting something that required some complicated setups and cramped spaces as they came back from hiatus. This episode also marks the first time that we have seen Neelix's ship from the outside back in Caretaker. We only saw the inside POV through the view screen. Now let's meet our guest stars. Representing the people of Akrotiria, Ambassador Lyria is played by Robert Pine. Now, if you watch TV at all in the late 70s or early 80s, you probably remember Robert as Sergeant Catrer on Chips. Numerous other TV and feature roles followed. And let's see, Pine, Pine, where is that name familiar? Yes, he is the father of future Captain Kirk actor Chris Pine. We'll also catch Robert again in an episode of Enterprise, so Star Trek does run in this family. The Akrotirian rebels that we run into, Vel and Piri, are played by James Parks and Rosemary Morgan, respectively. James is recognizable from a few Quentin Tarantino projects, the Kill Bill movies, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight. He even appears in the Tarantino-directed Death Proof segment of Grindhouse and the fake trailer, which became a real movie, Robert Rodriguez's Machete. James does have some sci-fi in his career, too, Alienation, Space Above and Beyond, and an episode of Babylon 5. That was for you, Norm. He will be back for an episode of Enterprise as well. As his sister, Rosemary, arrived to Star Trek with a pedigree, being the daughter of Julie Cobb, who appeared in the TOS episode by any other name. At 14, Rosemary landed this episode as her first professional TV gig, partly because she was the only young actor who could nail the complicated dialogue. Uh, Some of her character's plans were changed, though, as it was later decided to add the character of Vel so an adult could have some of the more pointed and aggressive back and forth with Janeway. And now, time to meet the prisoners. Beans Morocco plays Rib... And with a name like that, you'd better believe he has some interesting credits in his resume. His birth name is actually Dan Barrows, and in the 60s, he was doing improv in San Francisco. His first feature film role was in the 1971 cult film Billy Jack, and you might have caught him on TV soon after in shows like The Bob Newhart Show or The Mary Tyler Moore Show. He shows up in pretty much all the popular sitcoms of the 70s, and you can catch him again in another great cult film, 1982's Eating Raul, which also happens to feature a young Robert Beltran, as we mentioned way back at the start of our time on Voyager. Ed Trotta plays Pitt. Ed got his start on TV in the 80s with appearances on Hunter, Max Headroom, and others. Later on, features like Pump Up the Volume and Liar Liar show up on his resume. And most recently, he has been turning in a good amount of voice work on the World of Warcraft video games. Finally, Zio is played by Don McManus. And for an actor you may not recognize right away, he's got over 160 credits in his 30-plus year career, ranging from TV to film to games and everything in between. He's one of those actors who is constantly working, yet flying just below the radar. He was in the Adam McKay movie about Dick Cheney, Vice, as well as the dual biopic Loveless from 2013, 
Air Force One, and Ocean's 13 on TV. He has appeared on Dexter, Grey's Anatomy, Frasier, Dream On, Seinfeld, L.A. Law. It just goes on and on. But this is Don's only Star Trek appearance. This is the kind of adventure that begins with someone saying, into the garbage shoot Flyboy and Flyboy's friend. Prologue. A group of rough-and-tumble alien prisoners await with excitement as a new man is dropped into their cell, literally so as a body slides down a chute and lands at their feet. It's Harry Kem, and he's quickly sized up, pounced upon, and given a beating before he lands in front of a familiar face, Tom Paris. His buddy from Voyager sees him and immediately punches him in the stomach. Act 1. Being the new guy in a scary, violent, alien prison is nobody's idea of a good time, least of all a confused Harry Kim, who is defended by his friend Tom against some of the other inmates. Tom makes a good show of proving how tough he and Harry are. That was his partner in a bombing that killed 47 Akraterian soldiers, or so he says. That gets the others to leave Harry alone for at least long enough for Tom to privately give Harry the lowdown. You gotta act tough here. Where is here? It's an Akraterian prison, deep underground somewhere, and both Tom and Harry were unfairly apprehended, put before a kangaroo court, and found guilty of a bombing that they had no part in. There are no guards and no one to complain to for a fair hearing. For now, they just have to play it tough, and Tom in particular lashes out at Harry. It's not his fault, though. He and Harry and all the other prisoners have been implanted with a device called the clamp, a neural stimulator that makes everyone jumpy, aggressive, and on edge. Oh, and it itches and will kill anyone who tries to remove it. Tom and Harry's priority is escape. But down comes some food through the chute, some kind of nutrition brick that sends all the prisoners scurrying to get some, their only food option. One prisoner is electrocuted when he reaches up too close and touches the chute. Another has his throat cut by a prisoner competing for his food ration, all of it putting a damper on mealtime for Tom and Harry. Act 2. Oh, hey! Voyager time at last to check in with Captain Janeway, who had no help from the Akraterians in finding Tom and Harry, or even confirming if they are alive. Tuvok has scanned their planet to no avail, but even then, nobody has to wait much longer before they get word from Ambassador Lyria that the two were found guilty of the bombing and sent away to prison. They were found with traces of trilithium on their clothing, and since Voyager is powered with dilithium, well... It's just obvious. To make his point, the ambassador sends a couple of attack ships and a crew to board Voyager, but Janeway would rather skip this fight and come up with a new strategy. The senior staff convene and Bellana raises the possibility that a ship powered by paralithium could also be suspect. That could be converted into trilithium, so maybe they should turn their attention to tracking down any other vessels with that as a fuel source. Meanwhile, in prison, Tom and Harry are really feeling the effects of the clamp, but they distract themselves with fantasies of a dinner date with the Delaney sisters and the other fantasy of escape. 
Tom managed to get his hands on a section of metal pipe, and with a little loose wire, Harry could possibly short out the force field that's electrifying the chute. Harry makes his first attempt, and it stuns him with electricity, throwing him back and gaining the attention of the other prisoners. They want to know what he's got. Some kind of weapon? But Tom runs interference to make the others back off. The other prisoners close in, though, threatening the two, and in the melee, one of them stabs Tom in the gut. One of the more sensitive of the inmates, Zio, informs Harry that his friend will bleed out and die, so maybe he could have his boots? Act 3. Badly injured, Tom tells Harry that if it comes to it, Harry needs to leave him behind and save himself. When they arrive at their shelter, it's being occupied by an older prisoner who shouts at them to get out, leaving the two with nowhere to go. They go back to Zio, and Harry tries to make a deal, eh, some clean cloths for bandages and some food in exchange for his boots. Zio is only interested in the pipe, but Harry says that's the way they can disable the force field and get out, and he'll even take Zio with him to the surface. Okay, fine, but if Harry is lying... Zio says he'll kill him. The team aboard Voyager zero in on an Akrotarian freighter, and sure enough, there are traces of trilithium. The captain, Vel, is uninterested in helping, clearly hiding something, and ends communications. Unthwarted, Janeway just tractors the freighter and beams the two crew aboard, Vel and his young sister, Piri. While Vel is defensive, Piri pretty much spills the beans that they are on the side of an insurgent group called Open Sky, trying to overthrow the current Akrotarian regime. So, yeah, they were responsible for the bombing. Janeway isn't interested in their politics. She's ready to keep them in the brig and offer them up in a prisoner exchange. But Vel explains that nobody comes out of an Akrotarian prison. Nobody. Then Piri volunteers some more information, that they know where the prison is, and with Voyager, they could attack. That is, if Voyager's captain isn't a coward. So Janeway reconsiders. Rather than the brig, these two will get a hot meal and a shower. Tom is still struggling, and he reminds Harry that he should just go if it comes down to it. So Harry and Zio prepare to test disabling the force field, Harry loses his concentration as the clamp irritates him more. Zio tries to get him to concentrate, to force the pain to work for him instead of against him. And Harry can read all about it in his manifesto, where Zio has determined that the authorities have devised the clamp as a kind of prison population control. The truth is that by succumbing to the clamp's influence, the prisoners will try to kill each other. Harry is barely interested focusing instead on the job of shorting out the force field, and he is successful. The two scurry up the chute, making their way through tunnels to a hatch. As Harry wipes away the grime from a window, the two discover a more disturbing truth. They're nowhere near the surface of a planet. Rather, they are in a station somewhere in space. Act 4. Tom gets ever weaker and delirious, and Harry doesn't tell him the truth about where they are. In Tom's condition, though, he forgets how he got stabbed, and the clamp's influence makes him lay the blame on Harry and lash out, grabbing the pipe. The two struggle until Harry can talk him down and remind him that he needs the hardware to get them out. 
Relaxed now, Tom sleeps, and Harry stays by his side. The next morning, Harry is at it again, trying to devise a way out. Maybe there's a supply ship. Maybe they can ambush it. Zio taunts him again with the manifesto, because as Harry gets more and more distracted by his own frustrations, it's the clamp that needs controlling. Zio has the mental discipline, and it's all in his writing. Frustrated, Harry knocks the written pages out of Zio's hands, a sign that he has lost control. It inspires him, though, to assemble the other prisoners with news that he knows how to get out through the chute, and he's been there. The others aren't buying it, but he urges them to cooperate, to help each other out. The rowdier they get, the others hurl loose debris at Harry, knocking him to the ground once they hear the only way out leads to space. Dejected, he goes back to Tom, who has disassembled the pipe and its wiring. That sends Harry into a rage, fighting and punching his friend, then wresting the pipe out of his hand so he can hold it above Tom, threatening to bash his head. Zio sees it happening and urges him, go ahead, finish him. Act 5. Harry drops the pipe. He runs off, but is taunted by Zio that Tom is just dead weight and they need to be rid of him. Zio encourages Harry to help him find followers of the Manifesto and hands him a crude blade to use as a weapon. If Harry doesn't kill Tom, then Zio will. That's the only way they'll survive. And Harry drops the weapon, saying he'd rather die if that's what it takes to stay alive here. Meanwhile, Voyager has returned to Akrotiria with the prisoners and offers them up to the ambassador in exchange for Tom and Harry. How about no? The Akrotirians don't do things like exchanges or overturning convictions or justice. If playing hardball doesn't work, Janeway will just have to play harder. She summons Vel to her ready room with an offer. How about he tells her where the prison is and what the shield codes are? Now it's his turn to say, how about no? Unless she's willing to break out some more Open Sky members. Janeway's not having that either, because she's prepared to hand him and his sister over to the Akrotirians if she doesn't get what she wants. Well, when you put it that way. Tom Paris is closer to death and Harry is doing his best to fend off the other inmates who were there to take his clothes. But just then, the alarm blares, alerting them all to new prisoners. Only, surprise, it's not a new prisoner. It's Janeway, armed to the teeth with a phaser rifle, followed by Tuvok. They get to work, stunning anyone who gets in their way, clearing a path to beam up Tom and Harry to Neelix's ship that they just used for cover. Two Akrotirian patrol ships arrive to warn Neelix off, but he plays dumb, and they leave under a little light fire from the patrol ships. Safely aboard Voyager, Tom and Harry have been checked over by the EMH, healing Tom's wounds and removing the clamp from both of their heads. It did indeed serve to increase their aggression, but they will be fine. Now it's time to finally have that seven-course dinner. But Harry is burdened by the thought that he almost killed his friend when they were in prison. Tom reminds him that Harry is the one who warned off the others, told them that nobody touches his friend. And he'll remember that for a long time. The end. Nicely done, John. Uh, something you, that friend. I don't envy uh, of you or from you is mm-hmm. ever having to say the word Akrotirian. 
again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can just get through the whole episode without saying that. But then I look ahead at my notes and uh, no, I'm, I'm going to have to say it again. So, you know, uh, you know starting off, uh, there's a lot going on at the very beginning of the episode. A lot of action. A lot of foreheads. A lot of foreheads going on at the beginning of A lot of, this. of foreheads. Uh, yeah. At first, I was like writing in my notes, oh my gosh, I can't believe that there are Klingons out here so far in the Delta. Wait a second. Hold on a second. But they did, right? They look like Klingon foreheads. Same thing. Yes. When I first saw the episode, I thought, why? how did they get Klingons here? Now we have to explain that. It was a little weird because now that you have B'Elanna on the show, Mm -hmm. we're regularly shown a half Klingon, half human, and that's what they looked like. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. So you had oh, well. the Klingon foreheads. And then you also had kind of like Klingon goatees. So they were kind of like this weird yeah. hybrid of TOS Klingons. But hey, you know, one can wish. Only, only so many foreheads of the week to go around. Yeah. A lot of applications, though. I'm early time stamping this. One minute, 20 seconds in. The first rule of Akrotarian Fight Club. <laughs> Never call your friend by his first name. No, don't do it. Don't. <laughs> this is a good call. Yeah. Good call. Hey, I I don't know if you noticed this, and and for you in the audience, I don't know if you noticed this on your rewatch, but it's very subtle, and it's a good thing. Tom actually yells out 47. He says it, and then he yells it because he might have missed it. Yeah, twice. He says it (laughs) twice just in case he missed it. (laughs) He does. Oh, yeah, that was intense. By the way, the food that came down the chute made me think of Nutriloaf. I, yeah, I spent entirely too long reading about Nutriloaf. If you don't know what that is, well, it's prison food, and in some places, it's considered cruel and unusual punishment. In other places, I, I guess they've sort of uh, adapted the recipe, but it still sounds horrible and disgusting. Yeah. So that, to me, that's what they were getting. Or really big power bars. Ooh. Yeah. Either way, though, mm. um, I wonder how the toilets were working in the prison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that that's probably why they're all in space. Yeah, probably yeah. not. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so the clamps. Uh, if you're a fan of uh, say B movie science fiction, of which I am. I love B movie science sure. fiction. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This whole episode reminded me of a movie uh, that starred Christopher Lambert and Jeffrey Combs. <gasps> Jeffrey Combs. Yep, the Jeffrey Combs. Favorite. Probably yep. more known then at the time of this movie than, say, Star Trek. Uh, the movie was called Fortress. Hmm. And uh, it was a impenetrable fortress, much like the prison here. But they also had a piece of technology that every prisoner was forced to ingest called the Intestinator. What? Mm-hmm. And uh, also what they were eating. Ex- yeah. You know, it, was, uh, <laughs> yeah. it was a way to keep yeah. the prison population controlled because – it only allowed them to walk amidst a certain electro stimulus barrier, you know, field. And if they crossed it, their stomachs yeah. would explode. Hence, the name this, Intestinator. This sounds familiar. I, I don't know that I've seen the whole movie, but it, it sounds familiar. Maybe I've seen a, a scene from it or something. And it also wasn't in uh, Running Man, where, where you have the explodey. Head thing. It's a very sci fi trope yeah. kind of thing where very like, how do you control prison populations? Well, you use technology, you know, like innocuous technology to do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Hey, look, I don't want to start a thing again because uh, in our Discord and in our email, there's always a thing about how view screens work in the future. I will point out, though, I know, (laughs) to go down that rabbit hole again, I will point out there that uh, Ambassador Luria of the Acritarians, there we go, I said it, Mm -hmm. he's got a very nice center stage set up on his webcam because you have it across the whole, the big view screen on the Voyager Bridge. And his camera just follows him all over the place. So well done there. I'm totally on board with using center stage to do that. Hey, you said he was Chris Pine. He, that guy doesn't look like Chris Pine's dad. That guy looks like Thor. No. I thought Thor was Chris Pine's dad. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, same guy. No, we, I, honestly, I remember from Chips more than anything. Yeah. yeah. Hey, in case you don't know, because I didn't want to get into the details about, you know, a made up science fiction element that we're supposed to understand. What I do know is this, that trilithium, it's at least one better than dilithium. Oh, of course. In case you didn't know. Right? Yeah. Isn't it, that's, yeah. I thought that mm-hmm. was a standard rule. Is it not? Oh, it is. It, it, yeah. 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 Just, if any, any of you who didn't know that, that's just for you. But what about yeah. paralithium? Uh, it's like almost Oh, I see. Dilithium. I got you. Yeah, right. yeah. Not quite. Not quite. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> speaking of that whole paralithium scene, I really liked how Balana was like angry, and then the voice of Janeway's reason got to her, and then she went back into science mode. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. She's like, no, we got to do something. <laughs> no, yeah. Balana. She almost gave her like the Tuvok fingers, like, mm, hey, hold on a oh, second, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's Watch like, yeah, out. you're right. Yep. Reason and science would work better. Yeah. yeah. It, the pipe was such a major part of the scenery here like it, it is the most important it's the MacGuffin of the show right. it's the important prop of the show it had a very Star Wars prop feel to it I don't know why I thought that like we've got a lot of great props in Star Trek this felt like it was something that was ripped right out of Star Wars fine by me didn't take me out of it but that's what I thought it was very lightsabery. You it know? was because yeah. it had the ridges in it yeah, it like, I, um, I think that's why the Graflex yeah. you know flash bulb mm-hmm. grip bingo yeah. bingo mm-hmm. yep yep okay there's a lot of food talk right? in this episode. Yeah, so the, the first food fantasy that we get, so lamb, wild rice, the 2296 Lafitte Rothschild. Ah, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not, now I'm wanting Star Trek wines to make that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can, can they go, go to Lafitte Rothschild, have them bottle it, and then do the 2296. That would be their most expensive ever uh, but then yeah and then we have uh, shrimp with fetran sauce i would love to know of course that's a made-up thing so i'd love to know what uh what people have in mind for that flambe noodles mm-hmm. i'm thinking kind of like you've seen this with the big cheese wheel and they kind of carve out a little bit in the middle and then flame <gasps> the noodles in the cheese wheel that that's Ooh. what i had in mind go on yeah. go on mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. oh yeah good good stuff yeah fudge ripple pudding naturally enough said right. then then that's followed up T-bone steaks. I, I, they don't say rice and beans, but in the closed caption, it was spelled rice and R-I-S-A-N. They say like rice and beans, something else. Cherry pie. I, I, you know, look, I, I'm down for a good cherry pie, but that I think I'd rather have the fudge ripple pudding. Right. That's just my – yeah. That entire mm-hmm. scene, it was timestamped 14 minutes, 33 seconds to 15 minutes, 10 seconds. Yeah. Now – <laughs> what would you want if, like, say you and I, no, oh. non kind of like <laughs> racial similarities yeah. notwithstanding, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's, it's us. Stand in, it's stand us. in for yeah. Harry and Tom. Yeah. What would you yeah. have as your seven course oh, meal? Oh, man. See, well, I, I'm not going to be able to go through all seven, but I'm just thinking right now, like, if I leave the studio right mm-hmm. now and drive down the hill, I could go to Musso, I could have the crab cocktail. Oh. 
I could probably do a nice fillet, a side of potatoes, Lyonnaise, mm-hmm. um, probably another side of roast mushrooms, maybe some spinach, uh, definitely washing it all down with a couple of martinis, yeah. and then the uh, the J&M cheesecake from Petaluma that they ship in because Frank Sinatra told them to, and you don't not do that. It's as if you've so, never thought about this meal before. You know? uh, right, yeah. exactly. I, I just I, I had to write all that down. No, yeah, I didn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do, do you have one? Uh, it would be breakfast for dinner, pretty much. So, oh, you know, a full English or uh, I'm gonna do so. It's gonna be obviously bacon. It's gonna be yeah, three egg omelet. Uh, uh, actually, it's gonna be a spinach and spinach and three egg <sighs> omelet. Um, oh, I'll probably throw in. Uh, yeah, I'll probably do the full English breakfast: beans, ham. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole thing, the yeah. whole nine yards. Yeah. You know what I like to do? If we're doing a spinach omelet, I like to top that with a bit of sour cream. Yeah, of course. Yeah, naturally. Decadence on decadence. Love it. John, I'm, yeah. I'm no barbarian. I, I you know. <laughs> no, you're yeah, not. I'm, no, you're not. I'm a little bit of a civilized man, you know. <laughs> uh, number. Speaking of civilized, number one rule in prison knife fighting, you're never really only fighting one person. Ever. Mm. Right? Even if yeah. you win, you lose. Because you're going to turn around yeah. and you're like, oh, what's that in my stomach? That's yeah. a knife. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they make that abundantly clear. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, it, funny in my head, because we get the scene twice, but every time that Tom says to Harry, like, promise me you'll leave me behind and save yourself. I kept wanting to Harry to say, like, yeah, to, I, absolutely. You don't have to remind me. I, I'm already sold on that plan. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> so, I don't know if you noticed this, but when Harry was, uh, he was basically kind of like doing the stay back, you know, or I'm going to clobber you with this uh-huh. pipe. There's a guy, yeah. a really lithe, skinny guy, like mocking uh. Harry by doing the exact same thing. <sighs> No, and I'm like, I didn't notice. Yeah. Oh, I have to go back and rewatch that. Watch the scene. Oh. He's straight up trolling Harry. I'm like, dude, that's like, <laughs> it's kind of a really interesting scene because he's just obviously the psychotic prisoner who's watching Harry and he's doing one of two things. He's like, oh, I'm making fun of you or no, I can do this too. You know, you're nothing special. <laughs> That's right. awesome. Yeah. That that I don't know if the actor came up with that or if Les Landau came up. Brilliant. I, I got to go back and watch for that. But for an episode that does not have a lot of Janeway in it, there's a lot of good Janeway in this mm. episode. Mm-hmm. I love the look that Janeway gives to Chakotay when their communications is cut by the Ecuadorian freighter. I mean, it just all it takes is a look, and you know the frustration. It, it is awesome it's, it's that moment when chakotay replies to her i guess you're not the only captain who doesn't want their ship boarded so you can go find that hilarious mm-hmm. then when they do get uh vel and Piri on board vel says to janeway she's not my friend she's my sister that's cold crickets okay yeah yeah then Piri challenges janeway about not fighting the prison and calls Janeway a coward, Janeway gives the Janeway oh. stare. That is double cold. Yeah. She snapped not... that stare so fast. Oh, yeah. The whole room got icy when that happened. That was tough. Yeah. That was. There was yeah. something that really got under her skin, you know, yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it was so good. Got to point out, very nice, maybe a little too obvious, but really nice bit. 26 minutes in, Zio's monologue about the manifesto. Look at the framing of that shot. His head below the chute 
and the the lighting of the force field around the shoot looking very much like a halo, very much like this holy figure in this shot. In his own mind, I think, he is the holy figure here. Really nicely done. Uh, again, telegraphing, obvious, but so good. Uh, Zio Manifesto Monologue, that is the name for our album for today. And also, that image oh my God, yes, it is. is the album yeah. cover mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. Oh, psh, yeah. yeah. Duh. Yeah. yeah. The creative department just writes itself for that particular mm-hmm. product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I know that he's saying that, you know, you got to lean into your angry ants in your brain, Harry, and, you know, make it work for you. Uh, but for someone who seems so intelligent or at least self-educated in prison, Zio's very trusting also. I mean, he's like, okay, Harry says, I've disarmed the shoot. You touch it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right? And he's you. like, okay, sure, why not? Because I trust you, and if... It yeah. isn't off. That means I get knocked out and you get to rifle through my stuff. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So the revelation of the window when they get, when Harry gets mm. up to the second hatch, mm-hmm. that it's been a long time where I've, my expectations were so wonderfully subverted. Yes. And then when you pulled back from the exterior of that window shot, that window bubble to see that they're out in space and not in some type of underground terrestrial, you know, prison. I was really impressed. I'm like, okay, okay. That was good. I like that yeah. quite a bit. Agreed. And that did absolutely catch me by surprise. First time I watched it. Very cool. But also caught me by surprise, almost calling like the bloodthirsty guttural cry that Garrett was able to summon uh, when before he well when he and Robbie were fighting for the first time and before uh, Harry murdered Tom you know with that last yeah. pipe strike you know um, yeah. when uh, Zia yeah. was Zia was egging him on it's like kill him finish him off come on you know finish yeah. him you know that kind of thing right yeah but yeah the uh, this man is my friend nobody touches him that whole sequence Mm. Probably one of Garrett's best delivered lines, I think, in the series. There was so much earnestness built up in that. Just to give uh, a little bit of a side note, that's the kind of scene that sells an episode like Non Sequitur that came way before this episode so much more. Mm. And I kind Mm -hmm. of wish that an episode like this would have come before or Non Sequitur would have come up way after because this is the scene that sells that friendship in non sequitur that we criticized heavily for not really having the kind of cohesiveness that emotional cohesiveness that we were wanting this scene does that yeah right Uh, well yeah this shows the friendship rather than telling you about the friendship Mm -hmm. and that that that's why it works yeah Harry, Harry getting heckled during his big speech about working together, yeah. that, ooh, that, that was a tough crowd, you know, throwing things at you. So, yeah, he should, uh, he should not go on stage and bomb at comedy either. Neelix's ship isn't well armed, and I love the Janeway look. Well, then we'll have to be careful, <laughs> won't we? I mean, again, a great, another just great Janeway moment that's so quick, but so well played. Yeah. I do want to point out, uh, this is uh, a uh, medical thing that you might need to know. You can tell that Tom is closer to death uh, because of the shade of purple eyeshadow that he's now wearing. Uh, because with that color, he has just given up on life. Oh, Am I right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it went from yeah. a kind of like a light lavender to a very dark violet. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And also a little bit yeah. of a uh, little more five o'clock shadow that was happening. So you mm-hmm. know, yeah. I mean, you're, you're giving Definitely. up if you're not shaving, I guess, in prison now. So. No, I guess the wide beam phaser rifle from Janeway. 
guns blazing, yeah. like literally, right? Yeah. Great with that phaser and just doesn't really need pointing out, but I feel like I want to. Janeway is the first one down the slide, not Tuvok, Mm-mm. not the security officer. No, the captain with that giant phaser rifle, and I am here for it. Here's what I didn't get. I think a lot of maybe the entire episode would have been sidestepped if Neelix did his job as all things expert in the Delta Quadrant and just said, mm-hmm. hey, the Aquatarians, you may not like their legal system, so we might want to avoid them. Just don't right? beam down. Don't do anything no. there. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, on the flip side, and to bookend kind of like Neelix's arc in this entire episode, if there is one, he is really good about uh, engaging that double-jointed Talaxian move of patting himself on the back for being such yeah. an incredible shuttle pilot. <laughs> yeah, right? he's like an acrobat right. with that. It, it, incredible. Uh, there's one really important question, though, that is not answered in this, in the finale. Mm-hmm. As Tom and Harry are walking out of the door from sick bay. We don't catch the first part of their dialogue. So what we hear is baked potato, onion rings, grilled mushrooms, cherry pie. But are we going with the lamb or with the steak? Because I need to know. You can tell there's no internet in this prison. Zio would be streaming his own talk show from the basement where he elaborates on his manifesto. That great lamb. Hey, we'll get right back to the shoot in just a moment. But first, a word from this week's sponsor, Toink.com, T-O-Y-N-K.com. And Norman and all Mm -hmm. of you who can hear us talking about it, this is a site that you need to visit if you have not heard of them before. This is where you can go for officially licensed and exclusive release Star Trek products for fun and for your home. In fact, Norman, I think you and I already have some of our favorites picked out, yes? Oh, absolutely. And the the great thing about the products that you see at Toink.com is that they are officially licensed. The, the level of detail is impeccable, and the quality of the merchandise is really, really nice. So what is one of your favorites, John? Well, I'll tell you, people can't see me right now, but believe me when I tell you that I'm wearing one of the TOS, that's the original series, mm-hmm. bathrobes. And you're asking yourself, well, I didn't see anybody in Star Trek wearing a bathrobe. Oh, well, yeah, just use your imagination because I'm wearing a science blue. This was designed for ThinkGeek for the 50th anniversary. But mm-hmm. then uh, the product didn't make it to market. So now we have these waffle weave, beautiful bathrobes. And I, I love, I, it, it's got the uh, the rank on the, on the cuff. And I also, I, I'm touching it right now. So it's got this cool little badge. It's got the Delta sewn in. It's lovely. It is great. And it has the black trim on it. It's just very cool. And you can order them in medical, uh, you know, the blue medical or red for operations or gold for command. What else we got, Norm? Well, uh, I haven't seen it myself, but Mm -hmm. I understand that the Vasquez Rocks sculpture is really quite nice, detailed exquisitely in something that, I mean, the Vasquez Rocks shape is iconic to Star Trek. Yeah, and who wouldn't want to have that on their desk? And you can because they have a sculpture for it right there on the website. One of the other things that I'm excited about that uh, that we both got is, well, it's the decanter set. We're talking about a very high-quality crystal decanter and the matching glasses that go with it for, well, you know, Romulan ale, Romulan ale vodka, maybe whatever else you want to put in there. It is gorgeous and it is extremely well-made. 
Yes, the etching on that is fantastic. It's the etching for, say, if you were serving on the Enterprise D, and then mm-hmm. you, Captain Picard would have you for cocktails. Uh, he would obviously be pointing from this decanter. It has a wonderful stopper. It's very heavy glass, wonderfully etched, and it comes with four matching tumblers, also with the, the Enterprise D uh, engraved on the actual glass itself. So these are they're wonderful. They're heavy. Uh, they're befitting uh, serving on a starship. And here's one of the best things about it. So Toink.com is supporting us, and in turn, we want to support Toink.com. Again, these products are officially licensed. Many of them are exclusive releases when you go take a look and browse around at what they have. And they have deals like you wouldn't believe. Uh, Some of those deals like buy three, get one free. So if you're buying gifts, you just look for that little blue icon to tell you which items are eligible for that benefit. Most of those purchases, you get a free gift with... $50 or more in your purchase. So if you want a free gift, you just spend 50 bucks and you get it. They have free shipping in the contiguous United States. They have a rewards program so you can earn while you shop. And again, don't forget to use our 15% off exclusive code Roddenberry. Type in Roddenberry at checkout to take 15% off your order. So you can get these exclusive Star Trek products for your home at toink.com. That's T-O-Y-N-K dot com. And remember to use our code Roddenberry to take 15% off your order. You know, John, one of the things that I think may not be maybe as obvious in this episode as a discussion point to talk about, and it's something that actually struck me as very interesting, is the logic of survival in prison, but how it's almost kind of like the Kulinar effect. And I I know that's, again, it's not, it's, it's very abstract, you know, as an idea, but the way that it was presented in this episode, especially through understanding the character of Zio was, well, Allow me to explain. I know that it's, okay. it's, it's, a, it's a fairly large concept, but I think after I explain, maybe you, maybe the audience will have a bigger understanding of like this particular concept. So Zio says, I've never seen anyone see this. I've never let anyone see this, but I'm going to let you read my manifesto. And then things happen between Zio and Harry Kim and Harry Kim hits the papers. Mm-hmm. They all fly up in the air. Harry Kim looks at him angrily, says, are you going to help me or not? And Zio says, as he's picking up his papers, if I were like the others, I'd kill you, but I don't lose control. That's the difference between me and you. Mm -hmm. Now let's go one episode previous to this episode. Flashback. Yep. There's There's a scene where Tuvok is trying to put together the Kithara puzzle, and he is repeating this mantra. Logic is the foundation of function. Function is the essence of control. I am in control. I am in control. Let's remind everyone what Zio just said. If I were like the others, I'd kill you, but I don't lose control. Yeah. So I found that connection very interesting, very similar to what, say, Zio was doing with his manifesto and how he came to this logical understanding about how the clamps manipulated prisoners who gave into their emotions and allowing technology to control them through these emotions. So there is this interesting, even if it's um, a familiar trope in Star Trek to say a character who has the process of mastering mental and emotional control, 
like Zio, but mostly like the Vulcans, right? Because yes. Vulcans throughout the history of Star Trek have had to overcome emotional rage and uh, that taking them to the brink of annihilation and embracing logic over the emotion that was going to do to them what the clamp is doing to the prisoners. So I, I had a similar train of thought to you, and I was trying to figure out if there was something special to be learned or understood about Zio. Because I, I get exactly where you're going with this, and I think it is a very interesting parallel to somebody like Tuvok, who now a few times we've seen deal with kind of difficult mental stresses, difficult emotional stresses on top of his the control that he has mm -hmm. over himself, right? The discipline that he has. But Zeo is the same species, presumably, of 99% of the rest of the people who are in that prison. The only outsiders are Tom and Harry, as far as we know. There might be a couple of other nearby alien species, right? Zeo has somehow just sort of figured out and decided this is what this thing does. This is what the clamp does, right? But what gives him the edge? What gives him the ability to have the mental discipline to control that, to be able to stand there when, frankly, all hell is breaking loose around him? There are some great moments just physically of seeing that actor standing there and you know, assuming this kind of zen pose while everything is falling apart around him. And I wondered, like, what actually are we to get out of that other than just he's special, he's figured out. Because if everybody else has the same influence, the clamp, and the clamp is working the same way on everybody else, he doesn't seem to have the ability to go up to anyone and say, hey, by the way, this thing is controlling your emotions, it's controlling your brain. All you have to do is not let it do that. Well, that's a lot easier said than done, clearly, because everybody around him is stabbing and killing each other mm -hmm. for a bite of Neutraloaf. So maybe there is something about Harry in particular that he can reason with him. Harry just happens to have that ability that he can be reasoned with. But I wasn't sure if there was something unique to Zio, except that maybe before he was thrown into prison, he's somebody who had a great intellect, was a writer, did something else that, that would sort of drive him to react to his surroundings the way that he does compared to the way that everybody else does. I mean, there's the, there's the possibility that he was one of the open sky activists that, you know, they were trying to free, you know, in the prisoner exchange. Uh, that's that it was never established. And I know that's a little bit of a reach, but that was discussed, you know, when January was, mm -hmm. you know, she, she brought in the, the two prisoners from the, uh, the shuttle um, and the brother and sister and said, well, they had their demands and they have prisoners that they wanted to get out of that prison. What if he was something to them? You know, what if he was their leader? What, what if he was their, and believe me, uh, folks, I'm not making a, a, you know, a very strict comparison. What if he was their Mandela? You know, in a way, mm -hmm. you know, because they're there. You don't use the word manifesto lightly, I think, as a writer. So, you know, there were famous yeah. manifestos in history, the Communist Manifesto being one of them. And obviously it's role in history. So would you have somebody like a Zio in there and Zio was just basically one away from Zion, you know, so, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're mm -hmm. dealing with yeah. a messianic figure type here. I think that 
one of the things that this episode introduced and yet failed to capitalize on is pushing that idea maybe just a little bit forward because, you know, going with the Vulcan analogy here, he is or would have been their Surik in a way, you Mm. know, because he's trying to, for the prisoners at least, he's trying to do what Surik did to the Vulcans and remove them from, again, uh, that emotional tidal wave that almost destroyed their society. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting to question what it is about Zio, because it, the other way to look at this, and certainly the way that Harry, under the influence of the clamp, is looking at him, is you're insane. You're just a guy writing things that have no relevance to me, no interest to me. But but this might be the time that that manifesto scribbled down on a prison is actually correct. You know, we, we are certainly led to believe by the time we get back to Voyager and the clamps are removed from Tom and Harry, when the doctor says, like, yeah, this affected your brain. It made you more aggressive. It did these things to you specifically. Zio had basically figured it out. Mm-hmm. They're using this device to force us to kill each other so that they don't have to put the manpower here for guards or any kind of institutional discipline. So he was right. But he also comes across as sort of the the loose screw in the place because he's different. True. Different maybe in a productive way if everybody else was on the same page with him. Yeah. Uh, you know, one last yeah. thing about the manifesto is it would have been interesting mm-hmm. as, a, as a story point if uh, Harry had the time, like at the end of the episode, you know, when the, the, the influence of the clamp was purged from his system and he actually started translating what was going on with the manifesto and kind of like just raising an eyebrow. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, you know, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting. Mm. Uh, so, I, I want to move along a little bit to Janeway and uh, some moments with her in this episode. I talked about like kind of the the strong looks <laughs> in, oh, yeah. uh, in the previous segment, but there are choices that Janeway makes that I think are interesting. And and one of those scenes that stuck out to me in a very good way was the moment that she decides to uh, let, let's say softly cooperate with Vel and Peary to get on their good side, presumably by offering a hot meal and a bath after just previously assuming that she would toss them into the brig. Remember, she says, hey, throw them into the brig, and then it looks like we're going to get a little bit of cooperation after after Peary calls her a coward. It's like, no, 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 well, now I'm going to give you a hot meal and a bath, and we will treat you respectfully. I, I, I kept kind of re-watching that scene to figure out exactly what is the moment and what is the motivation that made Janeway change her mind. And I I wondered if it was because she realized she came on too strong and couldn't back it up if she's being called a coward, or if it was just a manipulation technique to see what else she could get out of them. But that that reaction to being called a coward felt very genuine oh, yeah. in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wondered about that one. I, I don't know if you saw any more into it than I did for that one particular moment. But the other segment that I thought, the other moment that I thought was really cool, follow, or at least topical that we could kind of pick apart a bit, follow that up with the moment that Janeway plays hardball with Vel again. When he tries to negotiate with her for the release of more Open Sky members, Mm -hmm. and she is very quick to shut that down, should she have heard him out? Mm. I mean, look, here's the thing. I I kind of talk myself out of that argument by saying, look, it's a dangerous situation. 
She has no idea who these people are, and that could actually endanger her rescue team if they go in and say, oh, we're taking you and you but not you. Who else do we need here, Avell? She also has no idea what the political situation is there. But I wondered, are they already involved? Are they already too deep in the thick of it that that in some way is a benefit to them? Or is it okay to just wash your hands of the whole situation and walk away? Because I think that becomes a more difficult proposition when you realize that, well, some of those prisoners are probably going to be killed. Vel and Piri will probably be caught and imprisoned or killed outright. So is there another right answer to what happened here? Based on Janeway's decision, I think the difficult thing about this about this episode, and I, and I know that we've said before, we like it when Voyager drops us in kind of like the middle of the story. Like we don't know mm-hmm. what happened, how. I mean, we do know eventually. You know, we we get the backstory of uh, there. Obviously, they've they've been. Um, you know, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. They're, they're being trumped up on charges for something that they didn't do. We get that, right? That's that's a, that's a standard narrative trope for kind of like these mix-ups in these certain circumstances. But I think with this situation, too many other questions come to mind. Like, and I said this before in observations, isn't Neelix supposed to advise Janeway on like the races that he may or may not know of? And if he doesn't yeah. know anything about the Aquatarians, then he would advise her, I don't know, I would tread cautiously and carefully. And maybe they did. I don't know. We don't get that. So there's too much speculation as to how or why these, like all of this fell apart. Now, now dealing with ambassador Lyria, she should know dealing with him and his almost kind of like a draconian way of exacerbating certain aspects of Tom and Harry's punishment and his interpretation of a, of a, a very finite law that they're dealing with. I think that she needs to. She knows all she needs to know in that one meeting. Like he knows that they're. She knows that they're inflexible. She knows that they're ungiving. Uh, she knows that they're non-negotiable people. And then she gets. And that's just from the ambassador, right? And then she gets kind of like these people off a shuttle, and they're the kind of like the same way. Yeah, right. <laughs> they they are. Yeah, but but I think the greater question is once you're in it. What is your actual responsibility here? Does she have any responsibility to anyone there outside of just her crew? It's, look, it's very convenient for the story. Mm-hmm. Just go like, I've got the upper hand. Uh, you can help me, and I can not just hand you over to the authorities, even though, again, they will probably be caught. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Is there any actual respect? Because remember, let, let's complicate it further. We're talking about a young girl. In this situation, too, we're, we're not just talking about uh, that jerk of an ambassador. We're not just talking about Vel, who's kind of prickly himself. Where we're talking about this young girl who, like I said, could possibly be caught and imprisoned along with anybody else. No, I know. I mean that that obviously you know is is where like Janeway is struggling with kind of like the moral implications of what she's going to do and how she's going to negotiate and how she's going to work out the problem. But I think. At least where the ambassador is concerned, if you talk to somebody rationally and then you have this discourse with them and you mm-hmm. not only is it does that kind of like devolve very quickly, but oh, I'm sending fighters to you right now and they're going to fire on you because this is how we handle and exact our justice. That is, infor- I think that informs Jane was like, okay, 
These are the people that I'm dealing with. So I can react yeah. to him and those politics in one way. And then obviously with um, Val and Perry involved, that's a little bit more difficult. But at the same time, though, I think her responsibility – I know this is going to get a lot of emails. Her responsibility is to Tom That's why and, I brought it up. Is to Tom and Harry. <laughs> yeah. I mean if she's going yeah. to go as far as do what she did to Tuvix to get back Tuvok and Neelix, right? Yeah. And that's a member of – technically he was a member of Tuvix being a member of her crew, sacrificing him. And I'm going to use that word sacrifice. Sacrificing mm. him to save two others – then why wouldn't she do the same to people that she's never met before from a hostile race who's not negotiating with her in good faith to save probably two closer crew members than Tuvix ever was to her? Yeah. Right? Because well, if you got to do that, the math that way. Yeah. And, and that's why I was sort of exploring this idea about what what is the moral responsibility, if she has any, and does our perception of that get complicated when one of the people involved, one of the potential innocent victims here down the road, because Voyager, they just get to head off. They get to leave at this point. Is our perception of that changed any when you say, okay, one of these people is at least somewhat innocent? Piri may well have been involved in the bomb plot. She knows what's going on. She's also a child. And I, look, this is not the story where we explore that. This is the story where we get Tom and Harry out of prison. Um, but we're also left with this idea that, all right, Janeway is perfectly prepared to hand them over to authorities who she already knows are terrible. A challenge to all Mission Log listeners. Can you say you actually acted like an actionable Acritarian actuary five times fast? You know what is difficult about getting to the end of an episode like this, John? What's that, Norm? After eating a seven-course meal, it's really, really difficult to slide down a chute. It is. It is. Yeah. 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 I, so, you don't want to get stuck in it? That would be very awkward. No. No. I, I think you're yeah. right. But but here we are. We have arrived at the end of that very fulfilling <laughs> meal uh, that mm -hmm. is our discussion of the chute. And, and now we've just got to just drop right to the end. This is going to put us on the shoot so just we land elegantly right at the end of it. And that's where we are, where we uh, figure out if it held up and uh, what are the morals or meanings or messages, if there are some to be mined. So I, I feel like, you know, my thoughts here are pretty short and sweet on this episode. I think there are just some tremendous moments here for Robbie and Garrett as performers. I can absolutely see why, as actors, they would want to seek their teeth into this episode. Good for them doing that. Those opportunities do not always come along in an entire career, much less just on a series like Star Trek. And for that matter, not to be overshadowed, I think the guest stars here are all quite good. And in execution as a production, I think it's just – Strong aesthetic choices, Les Landau really achieves the mood that he set out to get. So it really is firing on all cylinders as far as that goes. So what's not to like? Really nothing except <laughs> – here, here comes the big butt, right? If I try to just sort of back out of the premise of the episode, the situation of the episode for a moment – 
It's one of those shows where you wonder why this one got made for any reason other than the producers thought it would be cool to do a Prison Break episode. Now, that is not to discount the very good character of stuff that we got here, but to do that, to do the Prison Break episode, you have to establish why your characters are there, how they have changed, what they've gone through to try to get out, all in a very short course of time in-universe, in what we're seeing here in Voyager, and all in a very short period of time for just the episode itself, you know, the 48 minutes that we get out of it. So does this really reveal anything about Voyager's overall mission? The answer is no. So where in the past few podcasts we've had episodes that maybe aren't such great episodes, but by default they have to hold up in the greater scheme of things, looking at you basics, I feel like this is a story that does the exact opposite. Because it holds up incredibly well as just an individual episode, as just a story with a finite beginning and end with a character arc. It does very well, but that is almost devoid of any other context. And mm-hmm. that's too bad because, again, Voyager is a show that has the promise of a lot of context. The characters we've gotten to know over a couple of years – the uh, importance of their very long mission and the newness and the difficulty of being in the Delta Quadrant. So I I feel like I I have to say it holds up very well as this individual slice of a story, but it really doesn't do anything as far as Voyager at large is concerned. Look, if that's my biggest complaint, so be it. The episode holds up. (laughs) What about Mm -hmm. you? You know, I mean, I really like this episode. I thought it was beautifully filmed. I thought Les mm. Landau also just – he created this aesthetic that was very consistent. And there was a, a, a very stark, you know, uh, reality of the prison situation that our characters were in. It was gritty and atmospheric. And I have absolutely, like, no issue recommending this episode as one that would stand the tests of time because in the final analysis, it's very well told. You have this incredible hero's journey with Harry. It's a landmark episode acting-wise, I think, for both Robbie and Harry. Mm-hmm. Everything is a, executed perfectly for a 90s-era science fiction story. And maybe you can tell I, I, by the tone I heard of my voice. voice change. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> what a terrible tell that I have. Uh-huh. That is actually my biggest critique with the episode. And it's not even the episode's fault huh. per se. I think the biggest issue that I have with the episode is me watching this episode. Hmm. Now, I know this is going to sound strange, but I think that some of you may be able to relate out there. There's a very present struggle that I'm having with myself when I watch episodes like this. My struggle is managing my expectations with the reality of 1990s science fiction Hmm. versus watching modern science fiction which is what I'm expecting this to be. Yeah. Okay. So you have you have this wonderful story, incredibly well told, but it's missing that brutality and that grim grittiness that is the the modern science fiction aesthetic. 
say in the style of the expanse or snowpiercer or perhaps what people uh have referenced as the pinnacle of modern dark science fiction that's ronald d moore's battlestar galactica yeah right so i'm trying to figure out how i can how i can enjoy more or separate myself from or create a more uh, palatable difference or distance from the 1990s Star Trek of where I need to be more fairly criticizing it for what it is versus the science fiction aesthetic of today that I'm expecting it to be. Can I be truly fair and detached from those two aesthetics, right? Because I'm trying. Can Can I ask you something I, real quick here? I don't want sure. to throw you off uh, your train of thought. No, no, no go ahead. But go I, ahead. I, I'm mm-hmm. curious if uh, – because I, I feel like the scenes in the prison were dark and gritty – but again, Star Trek's version of dark and gritty, is, yeah, clearly it's different in the 90s than it is now. And science fiction since then has a different dark and gritty aesthetic as well. The ending, the back on Voyager kind of slap on the back freeze frame, we're going to go have our steak dinner. Is it a scene like that that takes you away because you know that maybe they haven't truthfully wrestled with what just happened? Uh, because that that came to mind for me as you're describing the lack of grit at the end of the process. Harry's reaction to Tom at the very end was a little bit more of where I wanted to be, where he couldn't shake what happened at the prison. And Tom was like, hey, Harry, no big deal. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to go have our dinner. And, and then Harry said what he said. It's like, I almost killed you. And Tom's like, I know. Yeah. We don't have to relive that. I know what you did, but I also know what you said, and that's what I'm going to focus on so I don't have to go back and relive that particular event in our lives. They were getting to that. I think it was more kind of like that cavalierness of, hey, Harry, we're in prison, and it sucks, but we're going to make the best of it. You know, We're going to think about wonderful food and the Delaney sisters, Mm -hmm. and oh, by the way— Leave me, Harry. If if things go, I mean, it's just yeah. it's just a little too saccharine for me. Yeah. But in the 1990s, and especially for Star Trek, that was a very solid tone. Yeah. For the series, yeah. right, and a very believable, dark, gritty tone for that time. But that was 30 years ago. Right. And so much has changed, and we've watched so much. And I want to be fair to what I'm saying to not only for myself or what I'm creating, but you know, to you and your responses and obviously to the audience and their f- responses and feedback. I'm just having that, that inner conflicting argument where I'm watching it. I'm like, I can't believe they didn't push it that far. I can't believe they didn't risk more. I can't believe that I'm not going to see the continuation of but that's my expectation. That's hmm. not necessarily what they're delivering. And I think I need to be fairer about that when I review things and not expect things to be different, expect things to be more of what I think they should be today as opposed to what they were hmm. as the reality of that time. Okay. And I, and, I, and I hope I can get to that point. But yeah. everything that I critique in this episode is just because I wanted to see them push it further I wanted to see more depth. I wanted to see more angst. I wanted to see more edge. I wanted to see more everything because they're almost there. Right. You know? Right. But in the 1990s, by the basis basis of my argument alone, that means they were there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I can't see it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, context is everything. Well, what about Mm -hmm. morals, meanings, messages to pull from this? 
Well, that's where I think, you know, those – they do withstand the test of time and yeah. they are like these these greater um, elements of the episode that can withstand the story itself because there's this unspoken bond, you know, that we see in stories, especially with, you know, a pair of characters. And this is something that we've talked about in Star Trek over the course of every series. Spock, Kirk, and McCoy. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, Picard, Riker, or Riker, Troy, or Riker, Data, or Data, LaFord, you know, like those characters, uh, especially in Deep Space Nine, Bashir and O'Brien, you know, those types of, you know, connections, these unspoken bonds, kind of like these band of brothers moments. And I think that that's what they were trying to get at in this episode. Like, what are the events that create these unspeakable friendships, these unspeakable bonds between people? You know, I said this just, you know, you know, just a couple seconds ago in the recap, Mm -hmm where Harry said, I was ready to hit you with the pipe. Don't you remember? And Tom says, you want to know what I remember? Someone saying, this man is my friend. Nobody touches him. I'll remember that for a long time. So that's the unspoken relationship, you know, that I think that people actually can have. Yeah. If they have, and they can find that kind of speciality between, you know, someone else, someone special. That's something that you don't have to say. That's something that you know actually never have to bring up, and it'll be there uh, regardless of whether or not you're actually going to call that card in. My dad once told me there are a handful of true friends that you'll have in your life, and an episode like this reminds me of that kind of unspoken bond you have with those people. You will never have to ask them for a thing because they already know when you need help or when you need support or when you need comfort. They just simply know that they will be there for you unconditionally. And that's what this episode finally brought to the surface between Harry and Tom. It's not a complex moral. Mm-hmm. It's just a very powerful one. Yeah. You know, and, and again, that's the kind of thing I wish that was there earlier so that you can see how it's affecting their friendship later. Yeah. 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 How about you, John? Uh, I want to take you back to a quick exchange of dialogue between Zio and Harry when uh, uh, Harry says, I'm not a killer. Zio, they're talking about Tom. They're, they're debating Tom. And Zio says, if you want to survive in here, you'd better learn to be. And Harry mm-hmm. says, if that's what it takes to stay alive, then I'd rather die. That reminded me of another little Star Trek nugget that we are – oft <laughs> quoting on Mission Log, which is, we could admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. That's all it takes. Those are the words of James Kirk in A Taste of Armageddon from the original series. And the reason that that stuck out to me is that, again, it, it's so obvious that it almost doesn't need to be pointed out. But there's something really cool about an episode like this that takes our characters puts them in the most difficult situation that they can be in. What is the worst possible case for these characters? It's not just that they are captured and accused of something they didn't do. They're also thrown into a hellish prison. And to make matters even worse, their brains are being controlled and affected by this foreign object that is making them behave in a way that they can't control and they don't want to, you know? But what do they do? They fight it, and they keep finding the humanity within themselves to not be a killer today. Every influence is forcing them to be something that they don't want to be, and they keep fighting it. And it's really nice 
to see Star Trek return to a form here, return to, yes, uh, a trope that is often used in the show. But that's fine because sometimes we're too willing to see one of our characters make the wrong choice and we just say, yeah, but their back was against the wall. And this is one of those great examples where, yeah, their back was against the wall, but they still made the right choice to not kill today. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, The Swarm. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. At last, we've added another specialty to the list of Neelix talents. He drives the getaway car. And transmission. Like an actionable acritarian actuary actually acted 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 like This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.